Welcome to the Gateworld podcast. You are listening to episode 75 of the Gateworld podcast. I'm Darren and I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. This week we're talking about Stargate Atlantis, the first season of the second Stargate TV series. This is crazy. Our franchise is so big that we have three different TV series, so now we have to specify which show we're talking about. SG-1, SGA, SGU. It's SGA this week, and it's the first season. We're going back to our Stargate History podcast series. We've talked about season five of Atlantis. That's where we started. Then we went back and did the movie and all 10 seasons of SG-1 and the Arc of Truth and Continuum. And now we're going to do Atlantis seasons one through four. So season one aired in 2004 and 2005 on the Sci-Fi Channel. And this was heyday for Stargate. This was when we had two shows airing at the same time. This aired concurrently with season eight of Stargate SG-1. This was also my first year visiting the Bridge Studios. I remember watching the preview for from Stargate to Atlantis, you know, and seeing the footage of the Puddle Jumper for the first time, and I'm like, what the heck? It's a flying loaf of bread. <laughs> you know, that was the first thought that I had. And when it when it went through the uh, space gate at the end of Rising, man, I've, it's been it's been so long since I've since I've really thought about season one, you know. And it doesn't seem like it's been that long time ago. Mm-hmm. It's a ship that goes through the gate. That was such a cool thing. I mean, that was such a cool visual. Uh, we didn't have spaceships that went through stargates in SG One, with the exception, I think, of just the needle threader from Into the Fire. And uh, here we go. The Ancients created a ship to go through the gates, and we had stargates that were floating in outer space. That was such a cool concept. And now they're kind of commonplace, you know, with the Supergate and the Midway Station. That's just, you know, where how we've progressed. If you are sitting in front of a computer, you should you should uh, log in to GateWorld and follow along with our discussion. You can go to GateWorld.net slash Atlantis slash S1. Looking over this episode list, I think overall this was a really consistent season. I was trying to come up with my most favorite and my least favorite. I don't think there are really any stinkers in season one. The, for the first season of a show, this this was pretty consistent. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. It uh, was uh, really overall uh, a pretty dang good season, I have to say. But for your most favorite episode, what would you pick? This one's easy. I, I talk about it a lot. I think I just mentioned it last week. My favorite episode yeah. of season one is Before I Sleep. This was yeah. Carl Binder's first script, I think, for Stargate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not join the writing team full-time until season two. But uh, this was his time travel Weir episode. Uh, some good stuff about Weir's character. Uh, a bit of a character piece for her. Uh, cool time travel. Uh, back 10,000 years ago, uh, when the Ancients were still in Atlantis, when they were uh, warring with the Wraith and then fleeing Atlantis. I don't know. This is a cool episode all around. The team finds a super old weir. This is my favorite, too. This is just a cool idea. The first time that we get to Atlantis was not the first time that we think. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time it was a disaster. It's not a brand new idea in, in science fiction, but it's a, sca- it's a scarcely used one where where they do this this sort of thing where the history that we think is not the first time that it happened it was just a great idea and it was so well executed i will say though that i was very disappointed in the depiction of the ancients in this show 
You know, the, mm. the, they we had waited to see the ancients for a very long time at the Atlantis era of the ancients, the 10,000 year old ancients, for instance. Um, yeah. Before and, they ascended, they were sort of at the, at the peak of their civilization. Right. Exactly. Not the, the era of the ancients that lived in the Milky Way galaxy with Ayana and all yeah, those kinds, yeah, but Pegasus billions of years later, only 10,000 years separated from us. And it was just, you know, they were, they were, not interested in us at all. Kind of grumpy and yeah, political. Merlin was among them, Mirden at that time, and you know they wouldn't even tell us what they called their puddle jumpers for crying out loud. Um, <laughs> you know, they just seemed uninterested in in associating with us because you know they did not want to interfere with future events or whatever. You know, as Mirden says, causality must not be treated lightly. Yeah, um, or Moros, excuse Moros. me. Weir's story is really great, and and like I said before, the the uh, this our arrival at Atlantis was not the first time that that had happened. It was just a great concept. Yeah, and I love the fact that we took this character. We kind of recognized, hey, this is the same actor who played Merlin in the glowy, glowy uh, ancient version of Merlin on SG One. Uh, you was... and I had made that assumption at the time that that was the same guy, and they went ahead and made it so. Yeah, we were kind of speculating. Obviously, it's, it's, he was an ancient 10,000 years ago. He was he left Atlantis to go to Earth, played by the same actor, Matthew Walker. And uh, it turns out that eventually, boy, I can't even remember when. It was. It seemed like it was a couple of years later, uh, maybe in season 10, that they actually established that, yeah, that guy who was the cranky leader of the ancients in this episode became Merlin. It was um, the Pegasus Project where they established it, where... Um... Vala says, aside from the funny hat, you know, he's a spitting image of Merlin, and mm. and Daniel says, I already knew Moros. Was, I knew already knew Merlin was in the database, mm. so that was a great tie. Yeah, the the visual of the Atlantis gate room flooding, I think is is yes. uh, it's kind of like Atlantis's version of blowing up the Enterprise, isn't it? You don't get to do that very often, uh, but with the right story, you can destroy Atlantis, and the 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 gate room filling with water was just this visceral image of there is absolutely no hope we are we are screwed we are done so sort of the the conceit of the episode is the first time that we got to Atlantis the reason why this happens uh, is because the city was not programmed to rise which is what we're fixes and Janice is introduced in this episode Janice ends up being referenced a lot in the in the rest of the series and I guess maybe by implication in SG-1 so if that's the high point of the first season, what would you say is your least favorite episode? You know, looking looking back on these episodes, I would probably have to say Suspicion. Really? I say that as if I'm surprised, but this is actually my least favorite as well. <laughs> suspicion was the, the culmination of the Athosians not working and them being bumped off the show, basically. You know, it was more about Taylor and, and about her leadership role, and it just really fell flat as far as I was concerned. The the Athosians were felt that they were being persecuted on Atlanta space, so they so they they took their Bantos rods and went home. <laughs> That's good. It was thank you. It was a mediocre Stargate episode, in my opinion. It's it's a nice connection from the pilot with the necklace and Taylor's being suspected of of being a wraith mole, and she is, except she doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. That, that wacky little necklace that they found in the cave in the pilot. Shepard has the ancient gene, so he turned it on apparently when he when he picked it up and gave it to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this uh, when we were watching through the the early episodes of the season through Rising, and we meet 
the Athosians, and then they come to live with us, and we're all going to be best friends, and they're going to introduce us to to the the Pegasus galaxy. They're going to join our Stargate teams and be sort of our ambassadors. And then we saw hide-and-seek is really Athosian-heavy. Uh, 38 minutes when Holling is making the argument to, to you know, basically let Taylor have her last rites because she's going to die. I thought the Athosians were going to be around for a while. I thought they were going to be living with us in the city long-term, and it, it, it did. In suspicion, it felt like the writers had maybe intended that to be the case and decided that it was not working, so they needed to write them out. I'm not yeah. sure if that's the case, but that's the way it came across. I think overall in the show, looking back on the series, in my opinion, the Ashtosians were just the first people that we visited and had Taylor among them. But other than that, were no more or less significant than any other agrarian civilization in the Pegasus galaxy. They were pretty unremarkable. There was nothing particular about them that was that was exciting or outstanding. And that's one of the things that didn't work about the show. Well, they were set up, I think, to have more potential than they eventually got. Uh one of the really interesting things in the pilot that didn't pan out was the fact that they had advanced technology. Taylor had her little laser zapper, and there was yeah. a point that was made that the Athosians had technology, but mm-hmm. were not using it and were not exploiting it and were not building themselves back up to be an advanced civilization because of the Wraith, because the Wraith would come and stomp them to the ground. Yeah, um, they could light fires from across the room, but, you know, that was really... The, it yeah. just kind of quit there. Beyond Taylor having a laser pointer, that was that was not developed, uh, which was an interesting bit of the Athosians that, that I regret that we didn't get to see more of. We learned early on that Taylor has spooky mind powers and can sense the wraith coming. Um, it turns right. out that that was not something that the Athosians have in common. That's really unique to her. Exactly, and that's explained in the gift that she has... Some wraith DNA in your genetic makeup. Mm. Hi, uh, my name's Terry. I'm calling from the United States, and um, I'm answering the question of the week. I'm very happy that it's an Atlantis question because that's my show. Um, what's your favorite season one uh, episode? And I would have to say, for me, it's a no-brainer. It's Rising Part One. Um, that's when we meet all of the characters. They all came together. They were also wonderful. The premise of the show was set up nicely. It was just a wonderful show, and if you pair it up with Rising Part 2, it's, it's almost it's like it's a, a movie, a standalone movie. Um, I loved meeting uh, Taylor and her people. I liked learning about her people, and I am uh, a JT shipper, uh, 150,000%, so obviously the cave scene for me was classic. Well, how about the pilot? The pilot picks up from Lost City. The, the seventh season finale of SG-1. Yes, Lost City introduced Dr. Elizabeth Weir, a blonde. New Order 1 and 2, Dr. Elizabeth Weir, a brunette. In Rising Part 1, uh, we are introduced, of course, to the Atlantis cast in full form. We have been introduced to McKay and introduced to Weir previously. And then we pick up a bunch of new stars. Great special effects in this show. Rainmaker uh, Digital out of Vancouver. Uh, under Bruce Willoshan did the in, did all of the visual effects for this show, and they were very proud of it. They, in his words, we tried to make a movie, and you know that that sequence of the city rising up, bursting through the ocean surface is just spectacular. They did such an amazing job on on that. Um, you know, it was just a great show. The action was good. It was really establishing Atlantis as an action based show. The Wraith, 
in my opinion, not so great. Um, I thought Andy Frizzell did a bang up job at the time. I, I pretended that I was uh, that I thought that they were compelling and scary, and I tried to lull myself into that. And over time, I was just this is not working for me. Yeah, it was a new show. It was uh, the Wraith were a very different enemy from the Gould, and it was prone to sort of a different genre. It was uh, the Wraith were so freaky that. It, it almost inclined the show toward a horror genre, with the exception of, of some, some episodes like uh, Defiant One. Uh, the Wraith as a horror villain were not really exploited all that much. Personal taste, I guess, how scary they were. As, as a pilot, I thought Rising was really great. It was strong. It was just a really uh, well-structured story. So we figure out how to get to the city. We go to the city. We encounter the Athosians, and in encountering the Athosians, you know, we're seeing parallels between Taylor and Teal'c as the, the alien who's going to be our ambassador, uh, but it's different in that Taylor is the leader of her people and still has the respect of her people. She's not an outcast like Teal'c was. And then in fighting the Athosians, we, we wake up the Wraith and our people get stolen and we have to get them back and uh, really illustrating how John Shepard especially has sort of the ethos of Jack O'Neill and Stargate Command of, of going after our people no matter what it takes, no matter the risk. Elizabeth Weir establishes a really strong female leader, which I really appreciated from the show. That second hour really, really reminded me a whole lot of Children of the Gods, you know, with with mm. Freddie, you know, watching Apophis style the planet and with uh, Shepard telling Ford, burn those symbols into your brain and then going to that world to, to retrieve what was lost. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of that same formula. Yeah. Structurally, it felt a lot like like Children of the Gods. Hide and Seek, this was the episode that they were shooting when I was on set. And uh, that was fun, watching them film little bits and pieces uh, with somebody reading the off-camera dialogue and then seeing the final episode when it aired uh, with, uh, you know, Jinto as the little Athosian boy is locked in the closet and calling out via the comm system. Oh, that's what you were there for? That's what I was hearing, yeah. Somebody was delivering the off, off-camera lines for Jinto. Yeah, I never knew that. I never knew what you had been there for. One thing that, that many producers of science fiction say is uh, uh, no cute kids and no dogs, no animals, because they're <laughs> difficult to work with. Uh, and they can, they can result in some hokey stuff, like, um, you know, Boxy on the original Battlestar. Isn't he yes. cute? He's a rascal. He's getting into trouble. So, you know, we've got a Thosian kids in hide-and-seek uh, running around the city, Jinto and, and his little pal. and Wex. Wex. These are the sorts of things that make you happy, I think, that the Athosians left Atlantis and went to the mainland. <laughs> so you don't want the little rascals underfoot all the time. But uh, uh, this episode has some really fun stuff. The, the personal defense shield, Rodney getting the... ATA injection at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, they took care of that awfully quickly. They didn't even make that a story point in, in season one. They just boom, the very next episode they can all operate ancient technology. Or yeah. most people if it takes with them, yeah. Yeah, well, the original uh, uh, casting documents for Dr. Ingram, who eventually became McKay, was very much focused on the fact that he had figured out how to make use of of ancient technology and the way that the ATA gene worked, but didn't have it himself. And that was a point of deep frustration for his character. Uh, and that's present a bit with McKay in the pilot, but uh, they obviously decided not to make that an ongoing issue for his character. But the result is, the end of this episode I think is super cool, where he he, he mans up and is brave, and he uses that defense shield 
to walk inside of the alien mist and uh, get rid of it. Uh, I love the ending of this episode. 38 minutes. Right off the bat in Stargate Atlantis, we get a gate problem, which is the ship is stuck inside of an active wormhole, and after 38 minutes, the gate's going to shut down, the ship's going to get chopped in half, and our people are going to die. 38 minutes shares the the second favorite episode for me, as as far as I'm concerned. Uh, got to know Ford just a little bit. Um, it's probably one of my favorite Ford episodes. You know, McKay is is freaking out in the back of the puddle jumper, and, and Shepard is almost incapacitated with this iratus bug, which is the uh, the progenitor of the wraith, mm-hmm. attached to his neck. And the iratus the bug is established in this show. Yeah, and the producers have uh, commented that they, I think they cringe a bit when they see the bug, the, the <laughs> uh, crop that was used, and that they really worked hard when they brought back the iratus bug in season two uh, and did a digital version to improve the look because it's... Uh, the big rubber bug looks kind of... Ho- Maybe it's Joe Flanagan thought the big rubber bug was kind of hokey. But, uh, yeah, he did. I didn't mind. I guess I should say I was willing to overlook it because the episode premise was cool. Well, you know, it's not going to be moving around very much. It's it's stuck on his neck, and it's trying to kill him. You know, I bought it. You know, it's, it's a great show, and, it, and it's a great... Uh, you know, it, it adds to, to how the Stargate works, or kind of revisionist history, kind of corrects how certain things work, like an object can't go through until the entire object has gone through. Mm-hmm. What if the half of the puddle jumper goes through, but everyone in the back of the puddle jumper goes forward? What happens when they get to the other side? When the ship starts coming through, does everyone, like, come through inside the puddle jumper as well? And what if there's not enough space in the front? Do some of them <laughs> fall back into the puddle and disappear forever? How does that work? It led to some interesting things, like, in this case, you could throw somebody into the event horizon, and it basically puts them in stasis. Because they Mm -hmm. don't rematerialize until the whole ship has gone through, so that's what they eventually end up doing. Definitely a cool episode. Uh, uh, Nice nice stuff for McKay to be be prickly and explain ancient technology and and try and come up with a solution to this problem. Cool stuff with Weir defending the way that that we do things, uh, not giving up on our people, not giving them last rights when they're in a in a near-death situation that we're trying to save them from. And a nice a nice bit at the end for Ford to be a hero. So childhood's end. Great idea. The population of a planet is protected by a zero-point module, and they think that the only reason that they're surviving is because they kill themselves the night of their 25th birthday. Dominic Sempragna, Courtney J. Stevens, they all do fine performances. It's a good, sh- it's a good little show. McKay wants to take a, a ZPM from these kids and thinks that you know transplanting them back to Atlantis will improve their lifestyle. How morally superior of him, of course. Yeah, this one started our hunt for the ZPM, which was uh, really a theme, especially through season one, was an ongoing theme. The city Mm -hmm. is underpowered. We need power to be able to use the shield to defend ourselves from the Wraith, to be able to dial the Stargate back home. We're cut off from Earth. We need a ZPM, zero-point module. And this is the first time we really found one, and we could have taken Mm -hmm. it, but it leaves this the society vulnerable to the wraith if we do. This is the first episode written by Martin Garrow, who would go on to be uh, an executive producer and I think one of the show's strongest writers. Poisoning the Well, then, is the first episode that showcases Dr. Beckett. And Beckett, at this point, was not uh, a main character. He was he was a supporting character. Paul McGillian was not a member of the main cast yet. But mm. this, was, this was a Beckett episode. Uh, he up front hit it out center. of the park. He nailed it. This episode is so... Uh, sweet and touching, this relationship that, that he establishes. Uh, the team finds a planet of people, the Hoffins, who have developed a way to uh, 
to, or on the verge of developing, Beckett helps them to perfect this this uh, thing that any time a wraith feeds on you, guess what, wraith, you're dead. Well, originally it was designed to prevent the wraith from feeding on you, and then we discovered that it killed them in the process, right. which was which made the civilization who developed it a danger to the wraith. Which, as soon as the wraith figured that out, would have killed them, and that's exactly what they did. You know, uh, Shepard predicts that the next time that they tried to get in touch with Hoff, it wouldn't be there, and that's mm. basically what happened. But you know, the, there was a big it was a big bone of contention early on. Was was this uh, this solution to the wraith uh, the answer too soon? Yeah. And we're we're six episodes into the show, uh, if you count the the pilot as as one unit, and we've got the solution, which basically became the solution for the rest of the series. Really, you think so? They just changed and toyed with it over. Yeah, even even into season four, you know, the Hoffman drug. Michael had manipulated the Hoffman drug to serve his interests. Beckett's relationship with Perna, who is uh, this Perna. this Hoffman scientist, Perna. Played by Alison Hosick, uh, was just beautiful. I like this actress a lot. She was in season six of SG One. In Cure, she played Zena Valk, uh, the also a scientist archaeologist who uh, Jonas had a little bit of a potential love interest with, although it ended up not going that direction. So I like the actress, and and you know she's she's willing to sacrifice herself for the good of her people and uh, undergo the fate which befalls her. And it's just a really touching ending with uh, with Beckett here. Underground, the introduction to the Jedi, the or Jedi, or Jedi, however you prefer to call it. Colin Meany, great actor. Uh, exciting to see him in the show. We have this agrarian, seemingly agrarian civilization who wants RC four, and they turn out to be a very militant civilization underground who's trying to overthrow the Wraith secretly. They've been trying to combat the Wraith. They've got nuclear technology. We aren't introduced to Kolya yet. We go on this mission with the Jedi and we find out just what they're really made of. They they can be deceitful and treacherous and they want the puddle jumpers. They want our technology. They think we only have one and then we show them that we have more just to get ourselves back home. It's a good show. So interesting on so many levels, like you said. They have a common enemy with us, uh, but we are more technologically advanced when we go and see their underground facility in the state of their of their uh, nuclear project. It seems to be sort of circa 1940s. Uh, so McKay is able to help them. You know, he, he built a, a nuclear reactor in, in the junior high or something. The other thing about these guys that's so interesting is is that, as you said, they have a very different way of going about things. So instead of becoming our ally, they are going to do whatever it takes to, to take what they want and and mm-hmm. uh, call the shots. Yeah, uh, it was nice to see Kalmini in this role. I wish that we'd seen him a bit more, but uh, we eventually get Kolya as the representative of the Janai, and that's just... He's such a cool character. Yeah. Only one break for an episode with the Janai, and that's with one of my favorite episodes, Home. Donna Davis is in this episode. So our team returns, finds a way to power the Stargate, actually a different Stargate. So we take our control crystal to another planet and use this mist of energy to power the gate, get home to Stargate Command, see General Hammond. Everybody gets to go home, visit their friends, visit their loved ones. Or not. There's something else going on. It's one of those great novelties of science fiction. You pose the question and the answer is yes and no. And in this, I, I love that. Did, did Teal kill Cronus? Well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, did, did they go home in season one of, Atl- of Atlantis? Well, yes and no. The episode is called Home and they don't go home because they're being tricked That's by right. the 
The mist is actually aliens, and they're, they never left the planet. But still, it allows us to do some backstory, and we get to mm-hmm. meet Simon, who mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever fully established if Simon was Weir's husband, or, or if they were just uh, living together, or... Yeah, it doesn't establish for certain, but it's probably that they were just living together. One of my favorite lines of the entire franchise is in this episode. You know, it's like looking into a microscope at a cell culture and seeing a thousand dancing hamsters. It's impossible. <laughs> I love that line. I laugh out loud every time I hear it. Hi, this is Amanda. I'm calling from Sonoma, California, about the favorite Stargate Atlantis episode from season one. I really enjoyed the duo of the storm and the eye. This was a fantastic two-parter. For the first season of a show, this is the kind of story that you want to see right off the bat. We've got this super-duper city full of ancient technology, and we've recently made enemies. You know, you want to see that city get infiltrated, and what would happen if the Janai got control over puddle jumpers and everything else? What would happen if it actually rained? Mm-hmm. I think this was the only time it rained in the series. The only time that it rained, and I hate that to this day. That made no sense to me. Yeah, the Janai are back in this one. Kolya's on his mission... Uh, they're actively trying to take over the city. Uh, the teams are off-world, and they managed to persuade uh, someone to, to get uh, GDO access codes to the city. If you look really closely, you'll see Corey Montieth as, as one of uh, one of Kolya's lieutenants in this episode, a, a young Janai who passes Kolya a knife to threaten, uh, to threaten McKay. Uh, and he would later go on to be young Mitchell in 200 and Finn in Glee. I love like Shepard's um, renegade quality in the eye he thinks that Weir is dead and he just starts blowing away Janai and he doesn't care anymore he is going to take back the city and even if he's the last man standing yeah he really becomes kind of a, a one-man wrecking crew this this is the guy who you think when you watch the eye that that uh, if you send this guy on a black ops mission he can get any job done Commander Acastus Colia, played by Robert Davi. You cannot say enough good things about this character and about the casting. I think the only bad thing you can say about Colia is, is, in my opinion, the horrible way in which he was written off the show. Uh, yeah. In which he was killed in season three. But uh, in the storm and the eye, he is he is at his badass best. I mean, he is holding McKay and Weir hostage and threatening to kill them if he doesn't get what he wants. He's a, a military soldier with all the scruples of a terrorist. McKay's frustrated. They're trying to get the shield raised, and they don't want to destroy the city in the process, and a tidal wave is coming. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a fine, it's a fine hour and a half. So then we hit the back half of the season, and that starts with the Defiant One, which is a nice little story, a nice little wraith story. We're trapped on a desert planet with a wraith who is mean and hungry and... He's going to eat you. He's a leftover from the original siege. We discover the ancient satellite in this episode, and the significance of that comes to fruition in 119, the siege part one. Uh, and we, we get to learn a little bit more about uh, how far McKay is willing to go. Nyan finally dies, uh, much to a lot of people's uh, glee and satisfaction, just in yeah. a different character. Nyan from Newground, it was, I was happy to see him get eaten. Ford blows him up from orbit, the Wraith. It's a, it's a great postage stamp desert episode. Yeah, it's interesting to see in this one just how long-lived the Wraith can be. Even when they're not in a, a nice, cozy hive ship in stasis... I mean, this guy's 10,000 years old, and he is the Energizer Bunny. You you shoot him, and you blow <laughs> him up, and he keeps coming. 
Hot Zone. Yeah, Hot Zone, when we look back at Season 1, this gets talked about a lot in terms of the Asurans, who were later introduced in Season 3 as the Pegasus Replicators. Behind the scenes, they were talking about that this was like the setup for the Asurans a lot, but it's they make it just a passing reference in the series that this is, this, this is the thread that ties them together. So, a bottle show, we're in Atlantis, uh, and we encounter uh, not just a bug, but apparently a technological bug that infects us and causes you to see hallucinations and then you die very horribly. It kills you! And then it kills you! Yeah, it takes you and it kills you! Very horrifying death. You see ghosts and then you have, I guess, some kind of a cerebral hemorrhage and you go that way. Yeah, McKay thinks he's going that way. Um, We get the first mention that he has a sister. He thinks he's Mm -hmm. about to die. Uh, So he mentions his sister. And then at the end of this episode, trying to figure out where this technological bug came from, it's not Wraith and Origin. Mm-hmm. So that's the little bit of a hint that we're left with that leads into the replicators. We see McKay dealing with death, uh, great Beckett beats, great Taylor beats. Yeah, hi, Darren and David. Uh, this is Jim from Parsons, West Virginia. I was uh, calling about uh, Stargate Atlantis' first season, my favorite episode, and that would be uh, Sanctuary. I liked it because it was a classic detective story, and I also uh, liked the uh, guest star Shepard and uh, Rodney McKay uh, uh, banter, too. This was a kind of fun one. You have a kind of a fun backstory, behind-the-scenes story about this one. Would you like to share that at all? Well, we wrote uh, a we, I should say I, wrote the spoiler report Based on the casting sides for Sanctuary, uh, for the lead guest actress, the casting sides for the character Chaya Sar, uh, the leader of this this planet of people where apparently the Wraith never go to their planet, and uh, so we figure this out. Uh, it's They say that they're under the protection of their goddess, Athar, and uh, so we try and negotiate with them. Hey, can we use this place if we're ever attacked, or, or we find planets that are under siege by the Wraith, can we bring your people here and you can keep them safe and of course they turn us down but when I was writing the spoiler report for this based on the casting notices it was revealed in the script pages that that I saw that Chayasar is actually revealed to be Athar at the end of the episode and so I tried to write it in such a way that that spoiler was not in the report because that's that's a late act reveal uh, tried to stay away from it and basically wrote the story about Chayasar and who she was. Did you make the leap that she was an ancient? No, I did not. I left a little bit of a twist at the end, basically saying, but all is not as it appears, as usual in Stargate, or something like that. And uh, people saw the the spoiler report, and basically the first comment was, I bet she's a Thar. So wow. I don't think that I gave it away, but apparently I went just close enough to the edge that uh, people got it a little too easily. So you can chalk that up to my poorly written spoiler report, or you can chalk it up to the plot twist maybe being a bit predictable. What about the Brotherhood? The Brotherhood. I like this one. It's the Quindosum. Uh, as we as we go through these episodes, you see there's there's a lot of of spread in the ideas behind these episodes. They're they're kind of doing lots of different things. Here we meet a civilization that again we're on a ZPM hunt, and we find out that these guys have a ZPM. So. Uh, they're going to help us out. They go on a ZPM hunt with us, and at the end of the episode, the twist is 
they don't give it to us. They keep it for themselves. They're not going to do anything with it. And they acknowledge they, that they recognize that we've told them the Wraith are coming and that this city is going to be destroyed. But they say, you know, if it's what's meant to happen is going to happen and you're not going to get our help. We thought that you were the ancients and we thought that you grew up in Atlantis and you mm-hmm. didn't. You're just the most recent residents. And of course, the adventure is is made all the the more fun, and the twist at the end when they decide that they are not going to give us what they're helping us find, is is accentuated by the fact that that Shepard and McKay are doing this with some cute girls. Mm. The guest stars in this, uh, Jaina Mitsula, was one of our first interviews on GateWorld. Uh, she plays Alina, and Laura Manel, who plays Sinir, comes back from SG One. She was in Demons all the way back yeah, in Mary. season three. Letters from Pegasus. They are thinking that they're going to die, so McKay comes up with a new compression algorithm to send a data burst home to open the Stargate for a brief period of time, because that's all that they have power for. Yep, so we have not found a ZPM to dial home and send anybody, but apparently McKay's figured out a way to connect the Stargate for a second-ish. It's a bit disappointing that we get to the end of the first season of the show, and already there's a Clips episode. But as we've said in the past, when Stargate does clip shows, I think they do them really well. It's not just the Keaton family sitting around on the couch saying, remember when. There is some plot going on here, and uh, they stitch together these clips in an interesting way. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, our characters are are reporting to their superiors and and to their family about what's going on. You know, I always thought that this episode was about they send letters home to family members, which we all assumed was going to be given to them. And they, they had to be discreet and say, you know, that they, they couldn't say specifically where they were. Mm-hmm. And then Martin Garrow in season three basically reveals that all the civilian letters never got sent. They were mm-hmm. only meant to be sent if they died, which I don't think was the point of that. But, you know, that's the way that they decided to go with it. It's uh, kind of fun for Ford to be the one to go around recording all these uh, and you get some nice character moments. Uh, Weir's talking to Simon. She's basically saying to Simon, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to survive, how long I'm going to be stuck out here. You have my permission to move on with your life and find someone else. See, that's what I mean. That That's how they were written. They weren't written to say, if you're receiving this, it's because I've died. That's not how the letters were intended to be received. And she also sends some one after the other letters of, of condolences to, to families who have lost loved ones already. Starting with uh, the Wraith ship, the, the little dart that comes to Atlantis in the Brotherhood as sort of the B story. This was the start of, I think, one of Stargate's very earliest sustained story arcs over the course of... The Wraith are coming. Yeah, five, six episodes leading into season two. Uh, there's this this long buildup of the fact, relatively long, the fact that the Wraith know we're here, and yep. they they laid siege to Atlantis 10,000 years ago and basically lost. They're going mean, to do they, it again. They won the war and that they drove the ancients away, but they lost the city and, and couldn't take it over, couldn't destroy it because it was sunk. So now they're coming. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And then we lend, get into the siege, which is this huge three-parter. But first we have to do the gift, which is part of that arc. And uh, I think one of Taylor's best episodes of the series. Not that mm-hmm. she had a whole lot of, of episodes that were dedicated to her, especially mm-hmm. later on. But the gift is really standout Taylor episode. Yeah. We find out that she has Wraith DNA in her genetic makeup. And uh, we can use her as a communicator to connect with uh, our enemy who is intent on eating us. And possibly persuade them 
to go away, which which we do at some at one point in the siege part three, we we managed to persuade them to do something. Uh, so that was that was uh, a, a nice link for Taylor to actually have her have have her uh, have some importance. You know, she's not just a typical farm girl from the Pegasus Galaxy. She has <laughs> she ha- she's partially wraith. And it's a nice little balance to walk because uh, it's so dangerous for us to do this, for her to connect telepathically to the Wraith hive mind, because she can end up learning things and taking control of them. But then at the same time, I mean, they play into have her. super powerful minds, and uh, you know, they can take her over, which they do in this episode. And this, this is something that's going to play out for Taylor again and again as we get through to episodes like Submersion where she tries to, to telepathically connect with the Wraith Queen. And uh, Spoils of War, I think, is another time where she does this. And, of course, the season ends with the Siege, parts one and two. The first one, we go to... The Wraith are not here yet, so we go... We're getting ready for them. We go up to this uh, ancient satellite. And Groden. Poor Groden. The British member of the expedition. We needed to establish that, yes, this is a real threat, and uh, we are going to lose We are gonna lose people. And he and Ford are really the casualties from this event. It's a nice balance in the fact that uh, our heroes can, can do something, can accomplish something. They get this weapons platform uh, up and running and blow away one of the hive ships. Mm-hmm. They're really good, and they can do it, but, you know, they, they can't do it all. They can't save the day. Just like when the ancients fought the Wraith, there's just too many of them. So there's another ship that blows up the satellite. And then one of my favorite episodes of all time, Siege Part 2. Colonel Everett comes through the Stargate with his team, sent by General O'Neill, and he is ordering Weir to stand down. He is going to take over Atlantis and save it from the Wraith. He's brought a bunch of nuclear warheads through, which are all going to be knocked away by asteroids. Uh, he ignores Shepard's warning to save a f- to keep a few back, and which leads us to go to the Janai to ask for their nuclear technology. Uh, so this is this is just a great show. As as Brad Wright said, we spent some money in this episode. It yeah. is just a beautiful show. Those military guys. Oh yeah, they're so stupid. Take over and and uh, ignore warnings. The character of Everett is a bit of a cliche. Originally, the casting documents listed him as potentially recurring, and I think that uh, instead of making him recurring, I think that they ended up substituting him with Colonel Caldwell. You know what he reminds me of now? If you've seen Avatar, and who hasn't? Uh, <laughs> he reminds me of the the military guy in Avatar, and he's just sort of a of a walking cliche. But once we get to season two, he's got some nice moments uh, where he he's forced to to offer Shepard some respect. Mm-hmm. Siege Part Two is a gorgeous episode. When you get to the point where the Wraith are, have arrived and are full on laying siege to the city again, just like they did ten thousand years ago, and we don't have the knowledge and we don't have the power. That the ancients had 10,000 years ago. Some really cool visuals. So that's it. That's season one. Really strong start, I would say, overall. Really strong start to the show. They were doing this at the same time as SG-1, so this was the first time where the team was producing 40 hours of television in in a single Mm -hmm. production year. Uh, Really incredible feat, and they proved that SGA did not have to start out on kind of unstable footing, like the traditional first season of a show. Uh, the cast and crew knew what they were doing. The writers knew what they were doing. This show was, I think, off and running in many respects from the beginning. Uh, some elements, like the Athosians, like Taylor, what kind of role was she going to play, uh, mm-hmm. were were a bit of a, 
of a false start. I mean, you find your way through, you figure out what doesn't work, and you set it aside, which is exactly what they did. Yeah, Atlantis definitely benefited as a continuation of a mythos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, its first season was much more entrenched and and stronger than a than a first season of of a typical show would have been. Thanks, guys, for your calls on this week's show. We'll talk about Season 2 of Atlantis in just a couple weeks. Next week is our Open Line Night show. We will be joined by a very special guest, Michael Hinman from AirlockAlpha.com. And this is your chance to call in and basically ask us any question. Tell us what you want to hear us talk about, Stargate-related or not Stargate-related. Michael runs one of the web's premier general science fiction news sites, So we'll definitely want to talk about other big news in science fiction that's going on right now, Caprica or Avatar or Doctor Who, whatever is on your mind. And then Stargate Universe, we've got uh, a few months to whittle away until we get to new episodes. Whittle away. So tell us what you want to hear us talk about in Open Line Night. That's our February 3rd show. And then what's coming up after that, David? February 10th, Misdirected in Motion. We always ooh and awe the actors for delivering wonderful lines, but... um... Is that really to do with the actors or more to do with the writers who brought those characters to life? And that's what that show is going to be about. And then February 17th, we're bringing you Atlantis History Season 2. So that's the game plan. And that's our show this week. Thanks once again for tuning in to the podcast. If you want to give us a call on the hotline for Open Line Night, that number is area code 951-262-1647. You can also email a brief recording if you don't want to call into the hotline. You can send that to webmaster at gateworld.net. Keep it to about a minute, usually a good length, and you can send that as an MP3 or a WAV file. So we hope to see you back here next week. From Gateworld, this is Darren. This is David. And you've been listening to the Gateworld Podcast.